Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Loose Ends, a Sing Family Tragedy. This is episode 20, the next chapter. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. At this time, I've done all I can on this investigation. It is certainly not finished, but I will not be producing any further episodes in the immediate future. I still want to try and interview Shirley Singh. She previously indicated that won't happen for some months. I also want to interview at least two other people, both of whom I do not have contact details for. Inquiries are continuing in that regard. You may recall I have previously written to the Attorney-General and requested an interview. I am still to receive a reply to that request. I have sent a follow-up email. You may also recall Jeff Johnson has a petition for a pardon in front of the Governor-General. He received a reply from the Governor-General's Secretary dated 6 January 2022. Dear Mr Johnson, I write to acknowledge receipt of your correspondence of 3 January 2022 to the Governor on behalf of Mr Massimo Sica, requesting the exercise of the Royal Prerogative of Mercy. The matter has been referred to the Attorney-General for a detailed and thorough examination of your case and submission. This process is likely to take some months to complete. Upon receipt of the Attorney-General's advice, the Governor will consider the petition and make a determination on whether to exercise the Royal Prerogative of Mercy. Formal advice of the Governor's determination will then be forwarded to you. Yours sincerely. I'll update you as soon as any information becomes available. I've had numerous conversations with Jeff Johnson. He was very keen to come on the podcast but court protocol prohibits solicitors engaging in the public arena whilst the matter is before the court. Which brings me to my next point. I was hoping to discuss what the judicial future holds for Max Seeker with Jeff Johnson, but that is not to be at this time. In episode 4, you may recall I laid out the 17 points of circumstantial evidence that the Crown presented to the jury as proof Max Seeker was the killer. Those points were the basis of the Crown's circumstantial case against Max Seeker at trial. In this episode, you will hear those 17 points again, together with what I now find the evidence to be. From that point, we can gauge the strengths and weaknesses of the Crown case against Seeker as it stands today and as if a retrial was heard today. Of course, since 2012... Further evidence may have come to the knowledge of Queensland Police implicating Max Seeker or perhaps even exonerating Max Seeker. 
That is a matter the defence will need to deal with in the event Max Seeker is ever granted a retrial from the petition his solicitor has lodged with the Governor-General. This is the Crown case as it stands in 2022, based on the case as it stood in 2012. First, there was a significant body of evidence to prove that the killings occurred between 11.10pm on Easter Sunday and 7.15am the next morning, and that the only evidence of the accused's whereabouts was his own word. In reality, the time of death of the victims could never be accurately determined. The pathologist placed time of death as somewhere between four hours and two days before the bodies were found, which means death may have occurred any time between Sunday and as late as Tuesday morning. In 2006, the police position was that the bodies had been in the water some 12 hours. By 2008, this had changed dramatically to around 38 hours. It is no coincidence that this time frame was the only window available to Max Seeker to have committed the murders. If it were confirmed that death occurred after 7am on the Monday, it would be very problematic for the Crown as Max Seeker had an alibi for most of the balance of 32 hours. The Crown relied on telephone and internet interaction by the Singh children, or the lack thereof, to settle on the time of death as being between 11.10pm on the Sunday night and 7.15am on the Monday morning. And the victims did stop texting and did stop using the internet after Sunday night. But does that mean they were dead? Was it possible the night caller intervened in their lives? The sighting by the painter next door at 9.30am on the Monday seems extremely relevant. Recently, I revisited that evidence and viewed the video interview of Paul the Painter with police. And it seems compelling that he did in fact see City exit the house briefly on that Monday morning. There is strong evidence from a number of witnesses of the goings-on in the Singh house on the Monday and late Monday night, which make it doubtful death occurred in the early hours of Monday morning. The Crown also relied on the extensive water damage to the house to suggest the spa had been overflowing for a long time. But in evidence, the insurance assessor suggested the damage could have been caused by overflowing water from somewhere between 12 and 24 hours. He compared it to a hose coming off a dishwasher or washing machine and water flowing for an extended period. And was the spa water temperature consistent with the spa having been running from 12 midnight on the Sunday, the bathroom being hot and humid? And the evidence of the forensic pathologist engaged by the defence that death was more likely to have occurred within 24 hours of the discovery of the bodies. Second, that the accused was the only one who it can be shown was expected to be at the house after 11.10pm that night. On Sunday night, Neilma had messaged Max just before 9pm. We'll see you later tonight and then chat. I think I am coming down with something. Feeling a day before you get sick. We'll give the one ring. There was, and is, reliable and independent evidence from Marcia Q and the late Claudio Seeker that supported Max Seeker's word that he was home all night. Those witnesses confirmed him home until at least 1am on the Monday morning. The police dismissed these two witnesses as biased and refusing to call them to give evidence at trial. The jury did not hear their evidence. 
It is understood how Claudio Seca, being Max's brother, could be considered biased. But Marzia Q was not a family member, just a friend of Claudio's. She was examined at length by the Crime and Misconduct Commission and she strenuously repeated she would not cover for anyone who committed those terrible murders. It beggars belief she would be considered biased. And then we heard the story of the next-door neighbour, Lisa L. Police refused to take a statement from her as it did not support their case. As recently as 2021, she confirmed her claim that she saw all three seeker vehicles out the front of the seeker house in the early hours of the Monday morning. She was packing to go camping. She again saw the vehicles on Monday morning after the sun rose and they were in the same position. A third independent witness who placed Max Seeker at home on that Sunday night. Again, the jury did not hear that evidence. And to refresh your memory, it is that very evidence which forms part of the latest appeal to the Governor. A Court of Appeal finding in another case in 2020 whereby a conviction was overturned and a retrial ordered based on exactly that. Police refusing to take a statement from a witness because it did not suit their case. There was evidence of a person or persons knocking on the front door of the Singh house at about 8.30pm on Easter Sunday night. The night caller. The identity of that visitor was never established and he, they, never came forward despite the media firestorm that followed this gruesome crime and the hundreds and hundreds of police interviews. If the visitor were a friend of one of the victims and it was an innocent visit, would they not contact police? What was the purpose of that late-night caller? Did they stay, leave, return? And the evidence of taxi driver Bourne should have gone to the jury. Third, that Nilma likely believed that the accused was suffering from an inoperable and terminal brain tumour. It is expected that issue would not be raised at any future trial. It is difficult to understand how it was raised at the original trial. Nilma Singh's belief, or not, in the brain tumour story has no relevance as to whether Max Seeker was at her house on that night. The only relevance it had was that it supported the shaky claim of a volatile relationship. Fourth, that the alarm was not armed, prayer sheets printed and Neilma's being in a nightshirt wearing no underwear. That was correct. On previous occasions when Max visited, the alarm was not armed. The alarm may not have been set because the night caller who arrived at 8.30pm stayed or returned within the following one to two hours. The family said Neilma hated the cold and would not just wear a nightshirt to bed, more often a tracksuit. There is strong evidence Neilma was wearing more than a t-shirt prior to her death. This evidence was known in 2012. I found it in the police file, but buried by the Crown at trial. Her tracksuit and underclothes were found in three separate locations, scattered around bedrooms and in the spa consistent with them being removed involuntarily. The Crown did not mention this at trial. Just because Max Seeker looked at prayer sheets on a prior occasion, as his fingerprints were found on one, does not equate to these prayer sheets having been printed for him. Fifth, 
that Kunal and Sidi were killed in their beds. Evidence is consistent with both victims being murdered in their beds. There is no evidence as to the order in which the siblings were killed. It was claimed by the DPP that Neilma was killed first, but the order of the death was speculation on the part of the Crown and there was no evidence Neilma was killed first. It is difficult to conceive how, if Neilma was involved in a violent altercation with her attacker, Canal and Sidi remained passively asleep in their beds. The Crown downplayed Neilma's hair being pulled out by the roots and found in two locations on the first floor, suggestive of a violent struggle. The Crown actually went further, and despite obviously aware of her hair being pulled out by the roots, suggested there was no evidence of a violent struggle in the house. They also downplayed many strands of long hair, likely Neilma's, being found throughout the downstairs area of the house. The Crown downplayed the significance of the bleach cleaning of the downstairs area and significant bleach on Neilma's doona and on a pillowcase. And the Crown downplayed the significance of the killer or killers bringing their own bleach and bucket to the crime scene. Sixth, there was no motive for either Kunal or Siddi to have been killed, apart from a desire to cover up evidence concerning the killing of Neilma. This submission was no more than speculation. There is no evidence about the motive for the murder of Canal or Sidi. Seventh, the fact that Neilma was strangled suggests that her assailant came without a weapon and was known to Neilma. As the garden fork has been ruled out as the murder weapon, as you will hear shortly, the only explanation can be that the killer or killers brought a murder weapon with them to the crime scene, just as they brought bleach and a blue bucket. It is difficult to believe that if Max Seeker did kill the Singh siblings, that there would be no physical evidence such as DNA, blood, bleach or injuries connecting him to the crime. No blood, bleach or injuries were found on Max Seeker, his clothing, in the cars or in the Seeker home. It was a Crown case Seeker murdered Neilma in a fit of passion. If you accept this was not a domestic violence event, that motive is inaccurate. The more likely scenario was that there were two killers at work. One bludgeoned Canal and Sidi, the second killer strangled Neilma, with the first killer bludgeoning her also. Neilma injured one of the killers in a struggle, which necessitated use of the bleach and dumping of the bodies in the spa. 8. The garden fork was used in the attacks, or at least some of them. It was situated in a place in the garage that would be unlikely to be obvious to a stranger. There is now strong evidence, which was not known in 2012, that the garden fork was not the murder weapon. The evidence is so strong, it is believed the DPP would not raise the issue of the garden fork being the murder weapon at all in any retrial. A more likely explanation is the killer or killers brought their own murder weapon to the house and that murder weapon has never been found. A face print, ear impression was found on the door from the laundry leading to the interior of the house. The owner of that impression was never identified. Max Seeker was eliminated as being the person who placed it there. A further face print, ear impression, was found outside the door to Neilma's bedroom low down as if someone was crouching. 
fingerprints were found in the bedrooms, which have never been identified. This and evidence of other activity at the murder scene, suggesting the involvement of persons other than Max Seeker, was simply ignored or dismissed by the prosecution as a distraction. This evidence now takes on new meaning. 9. The impressions on the stairs were caused by bleach and combined with other evidence lead to the conclusion that the use of bleach was associated with the killing in some manner, probably to clean the floor. The presence of Neilma's blood on the wall adjacent to the stairs and the bloodied footprint in her room strengthens the submission. This is not disputed and the comment appears correct. There is nothing to connect Maxika to this point. The bloodied impression in Neilma's room is more consistent with a shoe print than a footprint, confirming the suspicion there were two or more killers involved. 10. The bleached impressions on the stairs were from feet and the lessening concentrations of bleach as moving up the stairs is consistent with socks having been worn. There is significant evidence the bleach impressions on the stairs have been interfered with. There is strong evidence there were two offenders involved. The evidence now known about the foot impressions is so strong it is unlikely the Crown would raise the issue of the foot impressions at a retrial. 11. The killer was obedient to the house rules about not wearing shoes upstairs. The Crown asserted that Max Seeker was obedient to the house rules of not wearing shoes upstairs. The below evidence was known and available in 2012, but downplayed. Combined with the shoe print impressions in Neilma's room, VJ's blood-covered size 8 sandals in Neilma's room, the spilt green tea in Neilma's room, and the cigarette butt found in the bottom of the spa bath, it is absurd to suggest Max Seeker was obedient to the house rules. And clearly, the killer or killers were disobedient to the house rules or unaware of the house rules. 12. Of the items missing, many were items of a special sentimental value concerning Neilma, and included the pendant given by the accused on Valentine's Day 2002 and the diary in which Neilma recorded matters concerning the accused, which he knew were stored in Neilma's drawers. Evidence of these missing items was given by Shirley Singh. It is possible some of the items were missing prior to their passing, and that information was unknown to Shirley Singh. None of these items appear to have been found. None of the items were found in Max Seeker's possession. The gold necklace was owned by Shirley Singh and was of no sentimental value to Neilma. Two watches belonging to Neilma were missing. One was found elsewhere in the house. Many months later, one of the watches was found under the front seat of her car. Four single earrings were stolen, one each of four sets. Were they lost or stolen? Five or six photos of a mitt were on the wall in Neilma's room, according to Shirley Singh, at the time she left for Fiji. Two remained on the wall after the crime. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. On that evidence, Max Seeker stole some photos, but left two behind. A painted stone given to Shirley by Siddy was stolen. A purse owned by Siddy and holding her house key and two ornaments were stolen. It is difficult to show how these items were connected to Max Seeker. In total, some 20 items were stolen or missing, presumed stolen. 13. Although the prosecution did not suggest what the reason was as to why the accused strangled Neela with murderous intent, the tumultuous and at times volatile nature of their relationship meant that sudden violence was feasible. The evidence clearly suggests the relationship between Max and Neela was neither tumultuous nor volatile. The Crown inferred it was. Neilma and Max broke up for a period of some two weeks in an 18-month relationship, but were back together at the time of the murders. The relationship between Max Seeker and Vijay Singh was tumultuous, as was the relationship between Max Seeker and Shirley Singh. Neilma was an active and willing participant in a relationship with Max Seeker, which was based on the premise that it must be kept secret from her family, not more. I would have thought if the Crown alleges the relationship was tumultuous and volatile, the onus would be on them to prove that. Of course, in cases where they cannot, as in this case, the go-to position is, it is not necessary to provide a motive for the crime. There is absolutely no evidence of Max Seeker having been violent towards Neelma Singh or indeed any of the other women with whom he had relationships. In fact, to the contrary, the evidence was that he had not shown signs of any propensity toward physical violence in any of those relationships. His ex-wife confirmed he was never violent to her or their children. His current wife supports that position. Other ex-partners spoke highly of him. Max Eker was a lot of things, but violent was not one of them. 14, 15 and 16 there was good reason to doubt that the accused was legitimately expected at Grass Tree Close on the 22nd of April 2003. 15. The accused arrived about 2pm and stayed in the house for too long before notifying anyone of the bodies to be consistent with an unexpected chance discovery of the deceased. 16. He lied about the time he arrived at the house because he knew that if he told the truth he would implicate himself in the killings. There is compelling evidence to the contrary. Had the Crown called Malena P, there would have been further confirmation regarding Seeker's movements on that Tuesday. The defence also failed to call Malena. 
It is no coincidence the Queensland Police failed to inquire about CCTV evidence at Stafford City Shopping Centre prior to 2.15pm on the day which would have corroborated his claims. Max Seeker had three children in his car when he arrived at the Bridgman Downs house. He had stated the intention days earlier of going to Bribey Island on that day and inviting Neilma and City to go with them. He had previously taken his children to the Singh home on at least two occasions, the last occasion being Christmas 2002, only four months before. It is no coincidence that of the 17 bodies of circumstantial evidence relied upon by the Crown, these three relate to deliberately lying about the time of arrival at the House on the Tuesday. The time spent by the prosecutor in addressing the jury on this deliberate lie serves to emphasise the importance placed on this assertion by the Crown. 17. He made statements to a trusted friend that amount in all the circumstances to a confession to involvement in the killings. It is highly unlikely Andrea B would be called to give evidence at a future retrial. She has been shown to be totally unreliable. It was well known in 2012 she is unreliable. You may recall the prosecutor was aware of the psychiatrist's scathing comments about her, but he chose to call her anyway. And if you recall, the DPP would not agree to police charging Maxika before the statement from Andrea B was obtained. It is curious that none of the 17 points of the Crown case included that Maxika's car was parked nearby in Pepper Street. Does that suggest the Crown too? did not accept it was Max Seeker's car seen in the street? Even though evidence of the car being in the street and that it was Max Seeker's car was before the jury and despite the fact the judge commented on it in his summing up. From a close study of that available evidence and witness statements, there is strong doubt it was Max Seeker's car parked there at all. But despite that, Queensland Police chose to run with that lie. I highly doubt that evidence would be admitted at any retrial. The owner of that vehicle was never identified, and it begs the question whether the car was driven by the killers or involved in the murders. The bleach on the downstairs tile is consistent with the killer or killers destroying DNA evidence, as was the bleach on Neilma's doona and a pillowcase found in the spa. Max Seeker had no need to destroy his DNA there would be a strong argument that a killer, other than Max Seeker, did need to destroy DNA. A review of the evidence by Fraud Squad Police confirmed there was a financial motive for the murders with focus in Fiji. Detectives were sent to Fiji to undertake investigations into those financial matters. As you have heard in the podcast, only one area of all the instructions was investigated by detectives whilst in Fiji. Detectives were more focused on obtaining evidence implicating Max Seeker. One of the issues that frequently crossed my mind during this podcast, and I grappled with continuously, was if it was not Max Seeker, then who was it? Based on the case the police had mounted, Max Seeker was the only logical suspect for the murders. Queensland police had ruled out any suggestion of Vijay Singh having orchestrated the murders whilst out of the country, and no evidence came out to support that. 
It does appear Vijay and Shirley Singh knew trouble was brewing and they were expecting some sort of violence. But no further evidence came to light about that either. I expect we will never know if the murders came about because of financial motive arising out of Fiji. And then, of course, the previously unknown evidence regarding Joe Cool and the Chinese triads came out in Episode 7. And Neilma's claims that if the evidence of the kidnapping became known, she could be killed, took on a new, sinister significance. That evidence was ignored in 2012, or treated as too hard to reconcile. A distraction, perhaps, as the Crown liked to suggest with any matter that did not fit their dialogue. So that is the evidence against Max Seeker as at 2022. It was always a weak circumstantial case. Now it is even more so. And as I have said previously, when I started this podcast, I was firmly of the opinion Max Seeker was guilty. Upon reflection, the media was mostly responsible for that, I believe. Endless articles about what a psycho Max Seeker was leading up to the trial. Like everyone, I had formed the opinion he was guilty way before the 2012 trial. That was a formality, really. And once I commenced reading the evidence for the podcast, although I was finding a disturbing number of loose ends, I still considered him guilty. As anomaly after anomaly surfaced, I found myself sitting on the fence. For a long time... I considered Max Seeker probably committed the murders, despite the evidence contradicting that view. I was anticipating I would be winding up the podcast with exactly that conclusion. A position I was prepared to take, but it did not fit comfortably, I can say. I was trained to follow the evidence, and that outcome flew in the face of that training. Incidentally, I held that view right up to the significant and disturbing evidence surrounding the foot impressions and the garden fork in episodes 17 and 18. That changed everything. What is my position now? I do not believe this was a domestic violence event. And I am more than confident the evidence supports that. And if you reach that point in your decision making, the next logical question is, if it was not a DV event... What was Max Seeker's motive for murdering the Singh family? And there is no logical or obvious answer to that. I am happy to go on the record and say now, I do not believe Max Seeker murdered the Singh children. I think he has suffered a significant miscarriage of justice and a wrongful conviction. I believe the most likely scenario is the murders were revenge for the police being informed about the kidnapping plot and the arrest of the kidnappers. The payback was organised by persons who originally engaged Joe Cool to undertake the kidnapping. It is possible Joe Cool organised the murders from within prison, but I am reliably informed he was working for someone when he organised the kidnapping. That makes me conclude the murders were organised by his employers. Whether Max Seeker or Neoma, or both, were the target, and whether the killers expected to find Max Seeker at the Singh House, is unclear. Perhaps the belief was that if the police informant was murdered, charges against the kidnappers would be dropped. The murders did occur at the very time the committal proceedings were commencing against the kidnappers. 
Was this the trouble Vijay and Shirley Singh were anticipating? Were they warned to expect trouble, perhaps? And if so, by whom? Was that the reason behind the urgency of installing the externally monitored house security alarm? As the evidence currently stands, I do not believe the DPP, or Queensland Police, would even consider arresting Max Seeker again on the charge of murdering the Singh children. There is simply not enough evidence and too many loose ends. The Crown will need a whole lot of new evidence before justifying his arrest again. I personally find the future possibilities of this case to be fascinating. Imagine for a moment, if you will, the petition Jeff Johnson has presented to the Governor found its way to the Court of Appeal and the Court ruled Max Seeker was to be retried for the murders. It's not entirely beyond the realms of possibility. I suggest the DPP would be unwilling to prosecute on the evidence as it currently stands. That would leave Queensland Police in the uncomfortable position of declaring whether they intended to reopen the murder investigation or double down and declare that their original investigation was solid and they had arrested the right offender. I have my own view as to how that would play out. Whether Max Seeker ever receives another day in court is now in the hands of Jeff Johnson, the Queensland judicial system, quite possibly the High Court of Australia, and the stubbornness of the Queensland Government and the Queensland Police Service. And if the stubbornness of the Queensland Government and the Queensland Police prevail, in that event, Max Seeker will sit in prison until at least the year 2047. And what do I mean by that comment? I am referring to the lengths the Queensland Government and the Queensland Police Service will go to to ensure the case does not reach any appeal court. I've said before, and I'm happy to say it again, the Queensland Government and the Queensland Police will have to be dragged, kicking and screaming, to any court hearing regarding Max Seeker. There are any number of examples over many years where the Queensland Police have refused to acknowledge problems with a case despite glaring anomalies staring them in the face. Anyone who has ever had dealings with Queensland Police, and I'm not referring to directly defending an arrest charge, will know exactly what I'm referring to. And it has nothing to do with whether Max Seeker is perceived to be innocent or guilty. If Seeker's case ever reaches the Court of Appeal or the High Court of Australia, the case will succeed or fail on its own merits, as it should. A panel of independent judges assessing the case on the evidence alone. That's it for the next chapter. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of Loose Ends. I initially estimated this podcast would run to around seven episodes. And here we are at 20 episodes with the potential for more. It was the investigation that just kept on giving. For my listeners living in Australia at least, there is one lesson you can take away from this podcast and that of who killed Leanne Holland. You get the defence you pay for. And I do not mean any disrespect to Sam DiCarlo nor the defence barrister in the Holland case. In both cases, they were funded by legal aid which means a monetary budget determined by legal aid. And the defendant's families were none the wiser. They both thought their son was receiving the best legal defence. If, however, 
you are in a position to throw serious money at your defence, you can expect more legal support in mounting your defence, private investigators undertaking inquiries, spending money where needed on consultants such as Bond University and independent forensic pathologists, and all before the trial starts. I would be comfortable in saying both Graham Stafford's trial and Max Seeker's trial would have had a different outcome had their defence been privately funded. Defence barristers in both the Holland case and the Seeker case were overwhelmed by material. In the Holland case, the barrister received the police brief of evidence on the Friday before the trial started. He had one working day and a weekend to prepare the defence. It took me years to get to the bottom of that case. In the Seeker case, De Carlo was receiving material from the police up to and after the trial started. When he complained to the trial judge that he needed more time, he was informed that if necessary, the trial would start without him. And as for producing this podcast, because of the mountain of evidence involved, it took much longer than I anticipated and I found it to be more stressful than I expected. I am OCD when it comes to ensuring what I broadcast is accurate, which meant many hours of fact-checking. I could not have produced a podcast without the support of my wife, for which I am eternally grateful. And to my unpaid voluntary voice actors, a huge thank you. I could not have done it without you. Sue, Cameron, Jacinda, Damien, Kate, Bobby Jane, Amy, Mark, Debbie and Brad, thanks again and Bad Bassam for his assistance with editing of the first half of the podcast. And thank you to Solicitor Jeff Johnson for trusting me with this project, and to the Seekers for your willing access to all the material you hold dear. You never asked me once what I would say. You never ever tried to tell me what to say or not to say. You literally had no idea of what I would say. Blind faith, I guess, that their son was innocent, and nothing bad would come out. Thanks to the guests who came on the podcast and gave their time freely. I'm currently hunting for a case to be the base of my next podcast. If you know of any cases you believe should be considered, I'd appreciate you getting in touch. That's the podcast for the moment. Thanks again for listening. If you follow the podcast, you'll be advised when a further episode is released. It is appropriate to end the podcast as it started. Thank you, police emergency. Yes, I've got three dead bodies in a bathtub. Do you need an ambulance? <laughs> okay, so how long have you been here, sir? <laughs> okay, take a deep breath.